Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Good morning, afternoon, evening. I'm not sure what time it is that you're listening to this podcast, but welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast. I am your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, I'm going to talk with Kurt Vincent. He has a very storied cyber career. He's got some great stories of how easy it is to use social engineering, both both from a physical perspective and from a cyber perspective to get into companies and the importance of all the things that, you know, we talk about on this podcast with from password security to educating employees, things like that. So it's a wide ranging conversation. I think you will enjoy it because I enjoyed doing it myself. So we'll have that in a little bit, but a couple of things I want to talk up front. Um, the education piece ties into the news piece for this week. So at least one of them. So I want to talk a little bit about business email compromise. So I've talked about it before on the podcast. I'm going to go in a little more depth here. Um, if you want a more detailed educational look at it, take a look at my, this week's edition of the Get Cyber Smart podcast because I go into a, a little longer detail on this. But this brought was I'm bringing this up simply because there was an article at ZDNet.com on Tuesday, or I'm sorry, Friday, July 22nd by Danny Palmer. And the title is The Biggest Cybercrime Threat is Almost the One That No One Wants to Talk About. And that caught my eye because it's something I've been saying for a long time. Ransomware gets a lot of play in the sense of hearing about, oh, another company got hit with ransomware. Oh, it's horrible. They had to pay, you know, two Bitcoin to get all their stuff back. Oh my God, it's a tragedy. And certainly ransomware is bad. I'm not saying it's not. But business email compromise dwarfs it in the, in the sense of loss. So let me read a little bit from this article, and then I'm going to talk about business email compromise real briefly uh, and talk about why you should worry about it, think about it, and have a plan in place to protect yourself from it. So from the article, the, the most lucrative form of cybercrime might not be the one you first expect. While ransomware gets global attention when it takes down vital services and cyber criminals get away with multi-million dollar ransom payments, there's another big security issue that's causing costing the world more money, but remains an embarrassing secret for many. Even though, according to the FBI, it costs victims over it has cost victims over $43 billion to date. Business email compromise scams may lack the drama of hacking attacks, but it's possible to argue that they've become the biggest cybersecurity issue facing the world today. Now, I will argue that from this perspective. It is the biggest criminal cybersecurity issue facing the world today. I don't, I don't think it's the biggest cybersecurity issue because nation state actors targeting companies and individuals and networks for um, data manipulation, for theft of services, for theft of intellectual property and things like that, I believe is a, is a larger cybersecurity issue. But me and the author here could argue this if we wanted to at another time. But continuing on from the article, quote, business email compromise is the number one cybercrime period. And there's no sugarcoating it. It's an international global problem with victims in over 90% of countries in the world. That's the scale we're operating. That says Ronnie Takazowski, sorry if I mispronounced the name, principal threat advisor for the cybersecurity company Cofence. Business email attacks are built on using social engineering to trick victims into transferring a payment to cyber criminals. Often scammers will pose as a colleague, a client, your boss, or a business partner to make their request seem legitimate. There are two ways in which scammers attempt financial business email compromise frauds. The first is sending emails from a spoofed account pretending to be someone you know with a request to make a transfer. The other is more sophisticated with attackers stealing usernames and passwords to break into legitimate email accounts and using those accounts to make their requests for funds. Sometimes this happens midway through a real conversation which makes it seem even more plausible in what's called a conversation hijacking attempt. So you can read the rest of that article if you want from ZDNet.com. But let me talk about this a little bit. There are two, you know, two major areas you should worry about this if you're both an individual or you're a company. From a company perspective, 
This can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars before you realize the loss has occurred. And as mentioned in the article, kind of two ways they do it is you get just a fake email, but you think it's real. And it may look like it comes from a company you do business with and they send you a fake invoice saying, you know, let's say you're a company that buys widget A from company B once a month and the bad guy figures that out through social engineering or through open source intelligence or whatever. Uh, and they send you an email that appears to come from the company by changing the domain name slightly so you don't recognize it's the wrong email address. And it just says, hey, here's the invoice for July for $200,000, wire transfer to this account. All right, simple as that. You wire transfer the money, the company ultimately sends you a bill and says, here's our invoice. And you say, I already paid it. And they said, no, you didn't. And you get into that thing. And by the time you realize that the money is lost, it is gone forever because it goes through a bunch of money laundering through different bank accounts before it actually leaves the country. The other way is they're actually in your system. So they're in the, 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 the email system of your CFO, your CEO, because of bad security practices, because of compromised login credentials, a variety of different reasons how they can get in. And then they send, the CEO sends an email to the finance department saying, I need you to pay this invoice. And there's an invoice connected to it. What's the finance department do? They pay the invoice. And by the time they realize it's a problem, money's gone. I had a company call me uh, in near the end of my career in the bureau saying, hey, I need some help. Uh, they were calling from California. They called me in Huntsville because I think they knew somebody that I knew. And they said, hey, call Daramont. He'll help you. Uh, and basically, they had been the victim of this scam uh, and that to the tune of $1.3 million before they realized it had been lost. Now, all is not lost on this, and I'll tell you how that is in a minute. But from a personal perspective, this is a huge crime in real estate sales. So if you have ever bought a house, purchased a house, what have you, you probably know that when you go to closing, um, you get an email that says wire transfer your closing financial transaction to this email account. Here's what you owe for closing. So you do that and you wire transfer, you show up for closing. Your money has been transferred to the title company or the closing attorney or whoever holds that money. And you go on with the sale. Well, bad guys are figuring this out. They're getting into the email accounts of title companies, of, of uh, closing lawyers, of realtors, and sending out what look like legitimate emails with your closing amount or they, they watch the conversation between you and the title company or you and the whoever see what it is. And then they send you an updated email later that says, Hey, this is the actual, the, the wire transfer instructions. It goes to a bad guy's account and he steals all your money. Now, the good thing is the FBI has worked with a bunch of banks domestically to create what's called the business email kill chain. And if you can report the the business email compromise within 24 hours of the wire transfer going, there's a pretty good chance the FBI can reverse or stop that particular mechanism. Cause what the bad guys are doing, they're not sitting there waiting for you to make the payment and then taking the money. They have a bank account where this stuff goes to and the the money sits there for a little while until they can go and figure out, Hey, there's money in this pot at this, this account that I've created, I need to wire transfer it out to Russia or wherever they're wiring it to. So if the FBI can get there before the bad guy does, there's a chance you can get your money. Yet. There's a whole pop, procedure for doing that, but it is possible to, to, to recover your money. Not always, but it certainly is possible. So if you are the victim of business email compromise, the best thing you can do, locate your, or contact your local FBI contact. Hopefully by now, if you've listened to me say this enough times in your business, you already have a relationship with your local FBI office so that in the event you have an incident, you know who to call because it's a lot harder to find someone who you need to talk to when you're in the middle of the incident. So know who your FBI contacts are before the incident. They are happy to come talk to you about threats and, and have that conversation and become partners with you on that. So that's business email compromise. Again, ZDNet, the author is Danny Palmer. Go ahead and take a listen to that or go ahead and read that if you want more information on this particular scheme. The other article I want to mention, I got this this morning. It's, I'm recording this on a Saturday morning. I was playing pickleball this morning 
And um, Corey Munson tagged me, uh, Corey Munson from PC Matic tagged me in a LinkedIn article um, that is from CNN Politics. And it says, CNN exclusive, FBI investigation determined Chinese-made Huawei equipment could disrupt U.S. nuclear arsenal communications. Now, I put on my sudden shocked face, but here's kind of what the article says. It's by Katie Bo Lillis. So let me read a little bit about this. On paper, it looked like a fantastic deal. I'm sure it did. In 2017, the Chinese government was offering to spend $100 million to build an ornate Chinese garden at the National Arboretum in Washington, D.C., complete with temples, pavilions, a 70-foot white pagoda. Uh, the project thrilled local officials who hoped it would attract thousands of tourists each year. Emphasis in this is my own. But when U.S. counterintelligence officials began digging into the details, they found numerous red flags. The pagoda, they noted, would have been strategically placed on one of the highest points in Washington, D.C., just two miles from the U.S. Capitol. Perfect spot for singles intelligence collection. Multiple sources familiar with the episode told CNN. As alarming, also alarming, was that Chinese officials wanted to build a pagoda with materials shipped to the U.S. in diplomatic pouches, which U.S. custom officials were barred from examining. That's kind of how, you know, when we, we have, the FBI has folks that are in the embassies in China, they get material we get material to them through these same kind of diplomatic pouches, which through treaties, the other company, other countries aren't allowed to look at. Anyway, back to the article. Federal officials quietly killed the project before construction was underway. Well, thank God for that. The canceled garden is part of a frenzy of counterintelligence activity by the FBI and other federal agencies focused on what career U.S. security officials say has been a dramatic escalation in Chinese espionage on the U.S. soil over the past decade. Now, that's maybe slightly slightly um what's the word i'm looking for exaggerated because this has been a problem for a long time is to say it's a dramatic escalation is probably probably not you know whatever but anyway so since uh let me read some more of this article almost among the most alarming things the fbi uncovered pertains to chinese made huawei equipment atop cell towers near u.s bases in the rural midwest According to multiple sources with the FBI, the FBI determined that equipment was capable of capturing and disrupting highly restricted Defense Department communications, including those used by U.S. Strategic Command, which oversees the country's nuclear weapons. So why am I bringing up this article? There's more to it if you want to read it. It's on CNN politics page. But the problem is, yeah, so Huawei is a telecommunication company out of China that's state-owned, or at least the majority of it, or a large part of it is state-owned. And they, you know, they... Uh, the Chinese government use these companies to do collection in foreign countries. So that's why you will see different cities in the country that will get these special deals. Hey, we're going to wife, we'll put free Wi-Fi in your whole, whole town. You just got to use our equipment and they'll offer all this equipment for free. And then all of a sudden the small little town will get this free Wi-Fi for everyone to use, which everybody thinks, Hey, that's great. Chances are this small little town is near some strategic U S facility, be it a military base, be it a nuclear power plant, pick your, Pick your U.S. target of opportunity, and that is why Huawei is putting these devices for free here. Huawei is a huge intelligence problem for the United States, um, and why they are not on the U.S. denied entities list mean they cannot do business in the, in the U.S., is beyond me, probably because then China will say, well, AT&T can't do business in China or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm sure, political reasons rationale for this that's beyond my particular lack of a security clearance so it's certainly a problem that you know the chinese are using huawei technology to do collection now is there proof of it probably not that you're going to see in public but i'm sure that the u.s intelligence community has some kind of proof there i would like to think so hopefully this is a 
watershed moment for our politicians and for our the U.S. intelligence community to get policymakers to realize that this is a huge problem. They need to take real care into how Huawei and another Chinese company named ZTE are putting their technology in the United States. There is there. I guarantee I I mean, do I have proof? Hell no. But I, other than 20 years of experience watching this happen, they are using this stuff to do collection on U.S. based information. So if you're a small town and you're getting free Huawei technology, just question why you're getting it and perhaps not take it. That would be the suggestion I have. Now I'm going to turn to my interview with Mr. Kurt Vincent. Well, I want to welcome to the podcast a man who has spent five decades dealing with cybersecurity issues from the U.S. Army to Morgan Stanley to Bank of America. And on his LinkedIn page, I'm going to read something that he listed about himself that I found very much right on the money for everything I ever say on this podcast. So here he says, I demystify cybersecurity for senior leaders, C-staff, and boards. It's not the technology, it's the people. Hallelujah to that. As much as 80% of cyber breaches occur because your employees unwittingly invite criminals into your company. The barbarians have crashed the gate and the classic perimeter is gone. So let me welcome to the podcast, Kurt Vincent. Kurt, thanks so much for taking the time to, to pop on and talk to little old me here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, Darren. So let's start a little bit with your career arc. I said five decades. I, 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 looking at your profile, I figured you started in the 80s doing cyber for the Army. So I was 80s, 90s, 2000s. It goes to five decades. Sounds longer than it really is. But so what got you started in the cybersecurity area back in the 80s? Well, first of all, I was thinking about it this afternoon. And one of the things I think is interesting is we never, first of all, we didn't call it cyber until just a couple of years ago. And you and I should talk about that as we go. But the main thing I want to be able to say is we didn't have security people in the 80s. Everybody was operations or engineering in one way, shape or form. So you did both. Very, very important distinction. And so basically the way I got involved was that uh, I came back into the Army. I'd been in the Army. I got out, went to college, came back in and was lucky enough to be one of six officers assigned to the Army Computer um, Engineering Center at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Now, the reason for the significance there is that it's going to sound like I'm saying I'm Al Gore and I created the Internet. Mm -hmm. But the, the truth of the matter is the Internet came from the college's environment as the ARPANET, and then it was developed into something called the MILNET. And the Milnet had a protocol, it's called the 1822 protocol, and then they did away with that and brought in TCP IP. And that's when I got involved. So I had the honor, and I mean that absolutely, to be the guy that was leading the team that helped bring TCP IP to the Army through vendors and trying to interpret what all that meant. So why do I mention that? Because the initial attacks all came through the wire. It was always through, there was no such thing as Wi-Fi, if you will. And in fact, there was no such things as, as a standard network. So therefore, with different things like Banyan Vines and all this, the idea of a single attack vector did not exist. And it did not happen until we standard on TCP IP. So as we developed TCP IP and started to put the stability in place, we were also expected to do the security which I think everybody should be forced to do. And it shouldn't just be a set of individuals that do security. And if we, if we can, I'd love to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Only from the standpoint that uh, um, it seems to get outsourced to a certain amount of individuals that are interested in it versus 
it being everyone's job. Well, let me ask you this question. So let, me, let me ask point. you this question. Yeah. At that time, at that period of time. So um, around that time, I think 84, maybe 83. Exactly right. Exactly um, right. War, well, in this well, case. war Games came out. The movie War Games, Matthew yes. Broderick. So when you yes. guys saw that, so like when I watch FBI movies, I'm like, it's not, it's not how any of that works. When you I'll saw War Games, true. did you look and say, okay, yeah, that's that's this is not even close to what could possibly happen, or did they were the writers of the movie close at the time? No, I don't think they were close. Uh, only from the standpoint that the security was awful. <laughs> yeah, just, fair enough. Yeah, right. I mean, so, that was so it's that easy was to get out of NORAD. If you if you're stuck idea. in NORAD, you can just sneak your way out. Is what you're saying? It's easy. Yeah, you can sneak your yeah, way sure. in NORAD and push the buttons, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was that was kind of the funny part, but it was it was useful just in terms of showing the culture that was evolving. And back in those days, you had things called BDSs, um, electronic bulletin boards, that you would dial into and exchange notes and pictures and things along these lines. And um, the thing is, is that with the war games, what it, that really made clear is that you had to be able to use dial-up. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of dial-up um, within the army didn't exist. You didn't have to use dial-up you were able to use directly connected networking. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the reason I say this is that's where some of the attacks started to come in. And it was not, it was not the bad guys. It was not the Russians. It was and certainly not the Chinese at the time. Yeah. It was just mostly kids or uh, people that were interested in technology. But I'll give the movie this much credit. They were right on the money as far as how easy it is to you know, do passwords and find things because people use things that are like tic-tac-toe was the, the magic Joshua. word. And yeah, Joshua, exactly. So, so all that kind of stuff. And still, and the funny thing is it, it, it reverberates even today. People still doing stupid stuff faster, but that's another, we'll have that conversation as we, as we, as we go on. But so, I hope so, so. you do that with the army. So you, when did you get out of the army? Let me ask that question. What was your last year? Um, in the army? Which time? For, uh, the second time. <laughs> I ended up getting out a couple of times. Yeah. But uh, it was the early 90s that I that I actually did okay. my first retirement, if you will. But I stayed in the reserves and got called up after 9-11 for a couple more years. Okay, because I wanted to ask you, if I wanted to see if you were still in during Buckshot Yankee, if you had any experience. No, no. No, I don't have any experience with that. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit I don't even know what it is. Oh, uh, that's the it was so it was a Russian intelligence collection. They they in nine, the late nineties, ninety-eight time frame, they essentially dropped thumb drives into parking lot or no, was it I think it was yeah, I think that's the right time, right? Ninety so they dropped sort of thumb like drives. Boxing. Yeah, or maybe shoot, I'm I'm starting to confuse myself now on that. So let's let's I'll double check the date. It's either 98 or yeah. 2008. Usually I have this off top, but it's late in the afternoon. I've been sitting here all day staring at stuff. So my brain's mush. But so, so you get out of the army um, and you go to Morgan Stanley. What, what, so this is an interesting point because for me at the time, I would think that even the financial institutions had little knowledge of the cyber issues that were coming down the pike for them. Cause and I, so, Absolutely so not. how did they you, no idea. right. So when you go in there, how do you even convince, <sighs> I mean, even today, it's hard to convince the C-suite that this is a problem. How did you do it back yeah. then? What did you come into for that? Well, okay. I'm going to be very, very honest here. And I was in mostly in a Unix type of environment and networking type environment mm -hmm. for a long time, early nineties, et cetera. Because what happened was wall street really wanted to get away from mainframes. They wanted to be able to use distributed platforms. And the only two sets of people that knew Unix and networking 
were either in academia or in the military. And they preferred the military people because of the discipline mm -hmm. and the uh, drive. Um, so we were more we were more in line with the way the Wall Street people thought. So basically, this is the same case. There was nobody who was assigned responsibility for any sort of IT security, if you will. And it wasn't until 1997 that I got called in by the CTO and um, I had been doing some deployment work with uh, Unix machines all over the world. And he says, you know, and, and you're gonna think I'm, I'm joking, but I'm not. He says, you know, I think this internet thing's gonna be big. <laughs> and we didn't know. I yeah, mean, sure. I, I kind of did because I just, just love the entire idea of the networking. So he said, I'm gonna give you a couple of people and I want you to build an IT security group. Now, the, um, I, said, I said, you know, I don't know that much about it, uh, but I'll do it and I'll get things stable and I'll, I'll do it until it's stable. And he says, well, keep hiring. I'll tell you when to stop. And that turned into 15 years and 400 people worldwide. <laughs> and we're able to build a, a whole bunch of different types of organizations within that group. But um, the main thing is, is that I started it off with an engineering component and then put support in there in the form of operations. And so we had those two components. We then said, we need some sort of a cert. And it wasn't called cert at that time. We happened to call it STAR, just a name we came up with for security threat and response. And put that together. And they just kept growing it until such time as like the lawyers said, we need to be able to do forensics. Here's, here's some money, go hire some more people. And the practice just continue to develop and get larger and larger. But there's something I'd love to say at this point, if I may. Feel free. And this goes back to what I started to say, because I get very excited about this concept. When we hit about 200 people, I went back to my boss and I said, you know, this is not the way to do it. We keep getting more and more people thrown our way. We need to have the people embedded so that they're sitting alongside of the operations people. And the reason why this opened my eyes is the developers would develop these wonderful applications. They'd get them very stable. Then they bring them to us with like 10,000 lines of code and say, now you got to make it secure. It's mm -hmm. like, you're kidding me. Mm -hmm. You know how hard that is after the fact? Right. And so I started the bills. Uh, I started like a campaign. I called it the three-legged stool. And that is an application has to do something for the company. It has to be stable and it has to be secure. And it should be the same set of people that do all three. And everyone fought me on that and said, no, 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 we're going to pay you to make sure you've got a team that does the security. And I, the reason I get, get excited talking about that is, is that I don't think to this day we've actually gotten to the point that there's um, not adversarial relationships between the, the cyber guys and then the operational guys who feel that the cyber guys are the just say no people. So at the time, so there was, well, let me step back a second. So Buckshot Yankee, I'm sorry, it was 2008. Yeah. That was when Russian guys dropped thumb drives in parking lots. And it, that's why the DOD can't use thumb drives. I, was, I got it mixed up with Solar Sunrise in 2008, which was 
two California kids and an uh, Israeli 19-year-old hacked into the Pentagon. So got the two things scooped up. Uh-huh. So, but you weren't gotcha. were there for that. But anyway. There's, there's a lot of them. So when you're doing, so you're taking the engineers or the, the developer stuff and trying to make it secure. I assume you had at this time no yeah. DevSecOps program. It didn't exist at the time to no, be able to that do all that exist. stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, I, I did some of that at Goldman Sachs, but it wasn't called DevOps. Right, right, right. Uh, it was just called flying by the seat of your pants. <laughs> yeah. Know? So you were building, I assume at the time you were probably building the plane as you were flying it. Yes. That's why I, that was as close as it came to DevOps. <laughs> okay. So, um, so as you come in, so you go from seeing what the aren't, you've seen the, the original before TCP IP and then TCP IP rolls in and then you're starting yeah. to see the move. Um, you're starting to go from a Unix platform. I assume at this point in the late part of your Morgan Stanley career to more of a windows platform, I'm assuming. Um, at yes, least a bit user. Sure. there was still sure. a lot of, Linux have, and Unix to this yeah. day. How have you seen the cyber threat landscape evolve during all of that time? Because I assume um, at the beginning it was, you know, nuisance guys trying to figure out the war games kids. And then yes. when did it get, when did you see the organization start to be involved? I would honestly say around 2000. Mm-hmm. It was right around 2000. I started to experience some some weirdness in, um, in Morgan Stanley in terms of the um, the, the type of uh, penetration attempts. And once again, these were technical type of penetration attempts. I really want to be able to talk about people type penetration sure, sure, attempts sure. Uh, since the, everybody always discounts that. Mm-hmm. But it was about that time frame that we saw two things. Number one, we started to see much more of an organized, and of course, this is the development of the organized crime coming into play. But we also started to see nation states and it started to become something that initially, initially nobody knew how to really hide their IP address. So you can see they were coming in from Chinese space, et cetera. And then later that changed to where they would go and get uh, servers in Portugal and uh, we'll say Argentina. Mm-hmm. But you'd still see the same sort of behavior and it's you know just like you call a signature. And so the, the the behavior became the thing that you were looking at and you weren't looking at the source. And as you saw the behavior take different types of forms, you knew something was happening. These were not these these were not just the I, I hate the term hacker, but um, only because it used to be the good guys who were the hackers. Right. But usually think of of hackers, though, as working independently, where um, by and large uh, we started to see much more behavior that was like in concert um, where someone might cause a diversion in one location to be able to try a penetration in another. That's, that's not just one person. Was the threat still focused on social engineering efforts like we see most of it today, or was it more of the technical looking for vulnerabilities in software and exploiting that and moving forward off of that? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just strictly technical type. And it's so funny because later, I think everybody realized, especially with uh, Kevin Mitnick's uh, antics, um, that uh, it, it doesn't need to be the um, the technology. And where they hey, can I? Can I tell yeah, you? go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I have a couple of stories that I love to tell, and it makes people skin crawl. Okay. But, uh, Those are the best kind. Those are the best we, kind. Yeah, but I think you'd get a kick out of this with your background. And um, in, in, I'm not going to say where this was because I, I don't have permission, but basically I, I had a team and one of the people on the team was this beautiful woman who was incredibly smart. 
really, really bright. And she was good at social engineering. And I like to think of the old James Bond movies with the, the beautiful Russian spy that would be able to try and tempt uh, James Bond. She was the same sort of, of person. Mm -hmm. And so I went on eBay. And when I do presentations on this, I actually have a picture of an eBay that shows you can buy these UPS uniforms right off of, of eBay. Handed it to her. She took it to a tailor in Manhattan and had it fit to her body. And then we drove out, a couple of us drove out to a branch office that didn't have receptionist. It just had a, a badge because it was for a bunch of geeks. And it was just technology uh, location. So we waited till lunchtime. And then we sent her on in with a handful of boxes. And she gets to the door and the guys tripped over each other, smiling, tipping their hat and allowing her to just waltz on in. She went into the cube farm. She acted like she was doing something. And then she sat the boxes down. Then she started flipping keyboards. And on the bottom of keyboards, she would find post-it notes with you know, complicated passwords because the IT people were smart enough to say, you need to use really complicated passwords. We're going to issue them to them, but nobody could remember them. You know, mm -hmm. it's things like uh, star, uh, uppercase G, lowercase X, you know, et cetera. Sure. So they would write them down on a post to note so she'd take a step back and take a picture of that with her camera <laughs> then she'd take a step out and look at the cube with the person's name since we knew the standard was first initial last name at company.com and we had the credentials so we collected about 20 of these before we reported to uh senior management to say uh, this is not a good way to be doing business and how many how many successes like that did you have was that was that the norm or was that the exception um, always, always you could get in with people. Um, another quick, quick story for mm -hmm. you is um, we, we wanted to be able to penetrate a data center and we knew there was a phone outside of that data center. So we sent some guys in with clipboards that had official looking paperwork and reception just accepted this and said, okay, you guys can go. And they, they gave them a, um, an escort. And I'd sent two guys in and they were in like a, a jumpsuit and a clipboard and a, and, a, and a hard hat looking like they're the telephone company. And they say, yeah, we got to do something here with this phone. And they take the phone off and they knew it was a VoIP phone. So they plug a laptop in and off to the races. They are inside. They penetrated the facility because the VLANs weren't set up properly and, wow. and such. So the, the bottom line is, is that in clear sight, in clear view, is usually the best way to be able to penetrate. No one suspects you when they can see you. So who do you think, so if you take a look at the nation state stuff, that's really, uh, that's a big focus for me. Cause I, I, in my, my simple mind, I think the nation state actors are the bigger threat than, you know, your regular hacker groups, which are still a threat, but, but which is the, no, which is the more, which, how do you rank the, the countries? I always talk, there's four, I always talk about Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. So how do you yeah. rank those yeah. from, Here's the one if you like if, if you go to a CEO and say we got to worry about these countries and they say, look, pick two, yes. pick two. I don't or pick one because that's all we can afford this year is you need to stop the one. Which one are you yeah. stopping first and how are you stopping them? I would I would say the Chinese are the biggest threat, followed by the Iranians. I don't take the Russians as serious because if you are watching what's going on in Ukraine right now, 
You can also see that there's a lot of problems with the equipment and the tactics and on and on and on. So the main point is they're, they're, they're more along the lines of Keystone cops mm. than the Iranians and the Chinese. And it's the Chinese who have got the discipline, the sure. absolute discipline. Um, as is evidenced by that, you probably remember the Titan Rain. Absolutely, you know, 2003. Uh, yeah. 2003. Yeah, 2003. And that was where terabytes and terabytes and terabytes were downloaded low and slow. It wasn't done very, very quickly. It had to be. And so they just basically drained it slowly. Excuse me? It had to be at that time because if you did too much of it, it would they'd, they'd see it. they go, why, why is all this yeah. traffic flowing out at 2 in the morning? This makes no sense to me. Yes. Yes, exactly right. So the, the thing is, is that I see the Chinese as much more um, disciplined. But the reason why I see them as a larger threat is Iran is really not after our intellectual property. Right. But the Chinese are. Mm -hmm. And um, so they're a double threat in that regard. They're disciplined. The people the, um, are patriotic to their country, not necessarily the Communist Party. But if you if you re do some research, you'll see that they're very proud of being Chinese and being smart people that we probably educated, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure, like, sure. They come here for grad school and such. Well, I think that's and, the, and uh, that right there, that, that's a great point right there. They come here for grad school. And that's part of the human piece, the whole yep. counterintelligence piece that I people have got to be sick of me talking about it. But because I posted on every time I post on LinkedIn, I got some counterintelligence piece because it irritates me that that we have there's the personal piece like just your 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 woman who went into the building. That was human intelligence collection. That wasn't cyber intelligence collection. You took right. you got cyber intelligence information that you then used from there. But without right. the human piece, you wouldn't have got any of that information. So that's right. Companies aren't I mean, companies are looking at the cyber piece. Uh, but they're not looking at the human piece the same way, or at least trying to put those two things Absolutely. together. And I think there's a lot that they um, can learn from the U.S. intelligence com community as far as taking those counterintelligence capabilities and doing stuff like deception campaigns, digital false flags, all that. But anyway, I'm I'm going off on a tangent. I'm sorry about that. No, no, yeah. you're not. It's not a tangent. It is in my mind. It is absolutely spot on. One of the areas that I personally really drive towards is whoever's responsible for the physical security in a company. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons I say that is, especially in New York City, which I worked for 20 years, a lot of the, the people that head up the physical security are retired um, law enforcement of some sort. And they're darn good at what they do and yet there's it's adversarial between yes. the cyber you know the technical geeks and the physical geeks where there's it's like guys we're on the same team so i've always tried to like pull them closer and say you know bring them in and say talk to our people let us know what you know and try and draw them closer but it just never seems to work um, one of the things that I just recently had happen that was devastating to, to like my psyche was I just got done doing a two-year engagement with a company that had gotten um, uh, breached. And this company was, they brought me in to build a cybersecurity program. Now, it's, it was about a half, um, about 500 million. So it was not a tiny company. And um, one of the things that occurred in this is that, as I said, okay, I said to the CIO, now we need to be able to bring in the physical security people. And I had a Navy guy, a retired Navy guy who was spot on with the, with the physical 
and understood all the skiffs, you know, the uh, the secure rooms and how all that ties together and whatnot. And basically, the CIO looked at me and said, no, 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 I don't want to get involved with the physical security. I don't get comped for that. What's that mean? What does so, comp mean? I, I don't get paid okay. based on the physical security. So this individual, since he was a CIO, said, basically, I'm only responsible for the technical side. And that just makes me crazy. And so I think, um, you and, I, go ahead, go, keep going. I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah, if I may, if I may just say, because uh, we, as we like to say, the term cybersecurity has only existed for the last couple of years. I don't know when you heard it. I think I started hearing it about four years ago, four or five years. Before then, you heard a lot about IT security, mm -hmm. and that was the physical security. But there's actually three components. There's the IT security, which is the geeky stuff. Now, I love that stuff, but there's also GRC, the governance, the, the regulatory and compliance. And as I like to say, that's that's sort of like everyone loves to cook, but no one likes to wash up the dishes. Right. That's that's sort of like doing the dishes and such because yep. it, it's, it's where you cross the T's and dot the I's. And then the third piece, which I think is is not where it needs to be, is the information security, InfoSec. And um, your cyber people are only interested in doing the geeky part. So they're, they're not paying attention to the physical security and some bad things are happening. Um, I can give you lots of different stories, but I mean, you start with dumpster diving <laughs> um, or, or doing clearance uh, of the people that are on the, um, on the, uh, the custodial team. Make sure that you ever seen the movie Wall Street with Gordon Gecko? Uh, no, I actually I have not. Oh, I, I well, know. sorry. The, the only thing I want you to know about that movie was just the fact that uh, he he uh, Charlie Sheen gets on the custodial team and starts going through people's desks in the middle of the night and um, starts taking the paper that they left out carelessly and he threw it in the trash. And then took the trash outside. And once it's in the dumpster, he gets off duty and he comes back and takes it out of the dumpster and takes it to Gordon Yecko. And he uses his insider trading data. Mm. But that was bad information security from a physical security. Nothing to do with the technical. What good did that do? Give them all the information they want. Excuse me? Uh, yes, is that a question for me? What, what good did that do? No, I'm just okay, saying yeah, in yeah. general. Yeah, yeah, right. General, no, you're right. Yeah, sure. It's not helping industry. Right, it's right. not helping our country. It's not helping anything. I think one of the things that we, we talked last week before this, the podcast, I think it was you who mentioned that there's a, there's a range of company size that really need the help, right? So talk a little yeah. bit about that because obviously your Boeing, your Lockheed Martins have hundreds of people, your Morgan Stanley's, like yeah. you even said, you built, you, you hired 400 people. So, I mean, that's, that's a company into itself. That's two companies into itself. So, yeah. so which, where is the, and I think it's, this is probably the majority of companies. What is that size range that is really failing at all of this, largely because they can't afford it. And how do we get over the hump of getting them to say, Hey, look, you got to do something. And then after that, I want to talk about your idea for, um, I called it fractional CI. So you have a much better term. So we'll yeah. talk about no, that I have as well. a different yeah. term Go for ahead. a different reason. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I, I, here's the thing is that my experience has been with the government or with big organizations. And so they don't need me. So I had to go off when I started doing independent consulting two years ago. I had to go and figure out where's my market. Now, what I learned was this, and this was after a tremendous amount of research, and I haven't met anybody that disagrees with me with the following. Companies under 100 million a year 
are pretty much in denial. They they say they they say that um, I can give you a great example too. But they say they say that nobody is they're not they're not a target. They're mm -hmm. not a target. Sure. Now, but I'm, I'm only being careful here because there are some good companies that do get it that are under. So, but I'm saying by and large, under a hundred million, they're really in denial. Over a billion, they got a clue. They've got budgets. They have CISOs. They have teams. They're, it's 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 they're well on their way. Like you said, the big companies. It's that 100 million to a billion that usually what happens is, and I'm not exaggerating. It's out on the golf course, and the one CEO says to the other, "So what are you doing for cyber?" It's like, uh, not much. What should I be doing? And they start to get a clue, and they start to get fearful. And the exact tipping point that I've discovered is that after doing a little bit of experimentation to see if this was something they should put money in, when the company hits $750 million, they're like, we're in. We, we've got to do this. This is, we can't go any farther. There's way too much risk because there's been enough of uh, an awareness. And, I, and I've got lots and lots of examples, but if I can just give you one real quick. Please. That's like an eye opener for people. Um, real quick, every, everybody on your on your uh, show should understand what phishing exercises are. But in a nutshell, what this means is, is that you hire companies like No Before, Proofpoint, Wombat to be able to exercise your company and to be able to see where they are in the overall scheme. And the first thing you do is a baseline. You just set it up and then over a relatively short period of time you hit a whole bunch of people and see who clicks on um one of the one of the phishing things that you put together and um the industry average is 27 percent that means almost one 33 is one in three so basically one in three of your employees will click on something they shouldn't and most companies, when I bring them into this, they say, oh, not my company. We're probably going to be around 20. And they, when they end up at 40 and sometimes 50, they, mm -hmm. they finally say, I get it. And they're, they're terrified because they realize that there's an example, an empirical example of how many people are clicking on things they shouldn't. And they need to be able to change their way of thinking. And if I can throw this in, there's no software or hardware out there that prevents somebody that's for sure from clicking on something they shouldn't and i would say even the one. the little banner that companies now put on saying this comes from an external address has yes. works for a little bit at the beginning but then like everything yes. else you just kind of yeah okay i know i've seen this yeah whatever i know blah 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 but and then if in the in the heat of the moment you're going to click on something and and something bad's going to happen so how do they so so for those companies under a billion Chances are, how many of them have CISOs? Probably can't afford them. None. Correct? Right. So how do they how do they deal with that? What's the what's the how do they get past that? Because let's talk a little bit. Well, explain. I don't think I've ever explained this on the show. The difference between a CISO and a CIO. So explain that difference between oh, okay. those two. Yeah, um, I'm going to throw a third in there if you don't mind. Sure. I'm going to throw a CTO in there as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. Okay. So basically, you start off with the CIO, the Chief Information Officer. His or her job is, is less to do with technology and more about the business side, the management of the personnel, the budgets, and all of the business type of aspects. They're pretty smart people, don't get me wrong, but they're not paid 
to be the person that brings in the next generation of um, technology and such. That's where the CTO comes in. The CTO usually doesn't have a very big staff. Uh, they just have a collection of really smart people. And you can think of that as more like R&D and such. And that's the chief technology officer. And that person is the one who's trying to figure out what does our company need to do for technology next. And then there's the CISO, the chief information security officer, and his or her job is to be able to protect the unwashed masses. Now, in a good company, these three work together. And in a great company, the CISO does not report to a CTO or CIO. They report to either somebody who's external, such as the CIO, excuse me, the, the CFO, the chief financial officer, or in a perfect scenario, a chief risk officer. And mm -hmm. that, by the way, is where they give the chief risk officer the cyber person and the physical security. And then he grabs them by the two of them and butts their heads together and says, you are now brothers and you're going to get along and uh, you sink or swim um, as one. So the point is, it doesn't need to be that expensive. But here's the big problem. Cybersecurity is not something you learn in college. There are people that are getting degrees in cybersecurity. During COVID, I taught at uh, a college outside of New York City. And uh, I had 50 students. And as I was telling my wife, I would have only hired one of them, <laughs> just one. And the reason is they all wanted to do something. But I, I, I'll give you a quick, for instance, everybody wants to be a pen tester, a penetration right. tester. Yep. Even though I've got tons of, of proof that that's going the way of AI. And you, if, you get, if you build a career in um, pen testing, you're going to be out of a job. Mm -hmm. So to get back to your question, the CISO is either one of two types of people. Either one, the C staff will bring in an ex inexperienced person who just graduated college and they they deem him and her the ciso and they're thrilled to have this kind of a title and actually they're there as a scapegoat if anything goes wrong they turn to the board and say look we hired a ciso and he or she didn't cut the mustard and that's just an insurance policy that isn't a is truly that's just uh that's just the cya type of exercise um, but by and large, the smart companies, what they do is, is they take their own people and they convert them from operations into security people. And boy, I have to tell you, having done it a few times, to be able to get them to change the mindset is mm. hilarious, absolutely hilarious, uh, just of what their sense of right and wrong is. And I've got another story for you when you're ready. So how many how many companies below a billion have those three positions? CIO, CTO, CISO. I'm not sure. I mean, CTO is, is more of a unicorn, I think, than the CISO, quite frankly. I don't see a lot of yeah. companies that even have that. But I should, but certainly don't. And the CIO kind of takes it no, all. No, you're and, right. Yeah. yeah, there's usually there's usually a combination of a CTO, CIO type mm -hmm. of person who usually smarter um they're either smarter than they are business minded or they're more business minded and not as technology focused. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's not many below. But the, the point I was trying to make is that growing a cybersecurity person takes a long time. It's because of the fact that it's just not something you can drop somebody into. They have to understand 
the the field in its broad sense and not just a sector. Um, otherwise, otherwise, you've heard the old line of uh, when you all all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same sort of thing that they'll they'll just keep applying what they know, and they'll focus on things like putting in better rule sets into firewalls, et cetera. And yet the remaining part of the facility ends up being vulnerable. And we like to call that putting a, putting an iron door on a tent. <laughs> so so you've got the great technology, but yeah. you left the other stuff out. So let's talk about your CISO solution. How did, so for, for small companies that can't afford a full-time CSO, what is, what is your solution? Yeah, uh, let me, let's talk about what industry is doing because there's just not enough people out there or they're too expensive. Right. And I can use round numbers. If you want me to use numbers, I can use numbers. Sure, feel free. But um, yeah, because I have a lot of friends in the recruiting business uh, because I've been involved in that over decades. And uh, the average the average CISO costs you total in, all in. That means not just what you're paying this person, but also the overhead. And uh, so it's a total cost of ownership. And right now that number is around 320K. So what that means is, is that in, we'll say, um, um, I like to use the example, like we'll say Louisville, Kentucky, you might be able to get somebody for maybe uh, 175, 200. And in New York City, that person's going to cost you about 650, 700. Um, It's just, so that's an average. It's a very expensive individual. Um, and so therefore, what you can do is there are people that are out there and uh, they call themselves virtual CISOs. And some companies just staff themselves with a whole bunch of good, smart technologists that can do the job and they do it as a fractional. That's the term that, that's run around with the industry. And you buy X number of hours per week. So let's just say you were to buy, and I'm making this up, um, just 20 hours out of uh, 40 hours. So you've got somebody 50% of the time. And they come in and they, they, they help your people get a, a clue. They then say, um, I'll, I'll be back in a couple of days, whatever the arrangement is. And then they come back and usually nothing's done, but that's a different right, story. Sure, yeah. But the idea behind it is, is to be able to say, call me if you need me. Now, that's a problem because what happens is if it's an individual, this usually doesn't happen. But if it's a company that's that has a staff, they oversubscribe these people. And these people are like, you know, that old uh, vaudeville act of spinning plates Mm -hmm. on uh, a pole and they go running around spinning the plates and they can keep all the plates going until something goes wrong. When something hits like that uh, solar winds issue that oh, hit yeah. a couple of years ago, when uh, all, all the virtual CISOs got, got caught with their pants down because they could not answer all their clients simultaneously. And so I happen to think that's an ethical issue. You, you, can't, you can't oversubscribe the service. And you can't just say, call me if you need me. It needs to be much more of um, what I have a concept that I, that I, that I came up with from living in the Southwest being stationed in Texas and in New Mexico and in Arizona for years, I know a little bit of old West history. And in the old West, you had something called the circuit preachers or the circuit judges because there wasn't enough judges. So what would happen is, is that a judge would have a circuit of, we'll say five 
courthouses and um, he would get on his horse and on Monday he'd be in this town and he'd hold court. On Tuesday, he'd go from, we'll say Tombstone, Arizona, and he'd go over to Bisbee. But yet there would be somebody like the Johnson brothers came out and, and, and shot Billy Bob. So <laughs> a deputy would run out to get the judge and say, you have to come back. And the judge would say, no, throw him in jail. I'm in Tombstone on Thursdays at two o'clock. The point is, is that there's a guaranteed time slot. So my idea behind the, the concept is, is that there's only 40 hours a week and you, know, you can't spend all that time in, in a role, but you can say, okay, I can have four clients. I can give each two hours a day and you can then give honest, honest service to be able to rotate through your clients. And that's why I feel that's a much more ethical way of doing it. And when you say oversubscribing, oversubscribing, you're saying the company with the virtual CISOs are oversubscribing their virtual CISOs. Not the, yes. not that the, the reason they yeah. do that is, is they never promise that you're going to get X number of hours. Oh, okay. Gotcha. They basically, and because what happens is, is that once people hire them, they use them a little bit and then initially, and then it, they get busy. And so they don't call the individual. So they yeah. subscribe somebody else and off you go. Gotcha. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. I had a guy, a guy I know in Nashville who was doing, who was working as a, supposed to be a, a virtual fractional CSO virtual, whatever. And he spent all his time at one company. It was a healthcare company, but he said, I was doing 98% of my time at this one company and I'm supposed to be doing these other companies and I just can't get off of this one. And he ended up going to another yeah. job because because the other issue with CISOs and and we'll, we'll and this and end this part of the discussion here, but is, is they're getting burned out. Everything I'm reading, they're getting so burned out because they're the scapegoat that it's making it even harder. Yeah. Because they're like, screw this job, I'll go do, I'll be the chief technology officer. No one's blaming that guy for anything, and I can do the same stuff he's Absolutely. doing. So I'm just going to get out of this crap. Yes, yes, and all of that has to do with leadership mm -hmm. and. One of, one of the things, well, first of all, I'm an old army officer. So therefore, the thing you're taught when you're a young lieutenant is that leadership is servitude. It's not about ordering your people around. It's about modifying or, or um, not modifying, but uh, supplementing. That's the word I wanted. Supplementing your people to make them successful. Do the logistics to be able to make sure they've got the guns and bullets and beans to be able to sustain the mission. And the same thing is true with a company that has a CEO that says, you know what, we're going to get behind the CISO. And one of the, the trends I've seen um, is, and, and I won't mention the company's name because uh, I was very disturbed when I started to see this process, is that when I would bring in a fishing company to be able to do uh, an assess an initial assessment and then be able to put a program in place, they started asking me, well, when we do this baseline, do you want to include the C staff? And the first time I heard this, I said, what? What do you mean? They said, oh, well, we don't usually like to embarrass the C staff. So in this case, I was employed, uh, hired by the COO. So I went to the COO and said, you know what? I got this back. What do you think? And he says, absolutely go for it. And with this particular company, uh, ended up we we ended up fishing the CEO, and we did not tell anyone that we had fished him. But we had a private discussion with him, saying you got popped, and you can see the value of putting something like this in place. 
the next town hall, when we discussed some of the after action, this individual stood up and said, we, Kurt, did, Kurt will never tell you this, but I got, I got popped on one of those fishing exercises. And if I can get popped, you can get popped. And so I'm telling you, this is something we need to take seriously. I take my hat off to that individual who's got that kind of courage to be able to say that nobody's exempt and we're all in this together. So, And that is a great point. And we're going to leave it at that because we have a lot more we need to discuss at some point. So I'd, I'd sure. like to have you back on maybe in a month or so, or make, maybe make you more of a regular once, once every quarter kind of thing and talk because you got tons of stories that I'm sure I have not even touched the best ones. So, Kurt, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. And I, leadership, I think, really is the key. If, if you don't have leadership, you won't have security. Oh, I should... Attitude. That should yep. be it. That should be a hashtag, hashtag on, t- on LinkedIn later today. No leadership, no security. Thanks so much. Thanks. There Kurt. you go. All righty. Thanks. Cheers. So once again, I want to thank Kurt Vincent for coming on the podcast. We'll have him on again in the future. We really just kind of touched the surface of, of knowledge he has and things he can talk about. So again, thank you, Kurt. I really enjoyed it. And we will talk again soon. Let me end today's show with a successful cybercrime um conviction, a, a successful case. So this is from July 21st, 2022. It is out of Boston. And this is a district of Massachusetts, U.S. U.S. State's Attorney's Office. The press release says, Mr. Bitcoin, founder convicted of cryptocurrency fraud scheme. So the founder of Mr. Bitcoin Pay Inc., a purported cryptocurrency and virtual payment services company headquartered in Las Vegas, was convicted by a federal jury today in connection with a scheme to defraud investors by marketing and selling fraudulent virtual cryptocurrency. Russell Crater, 51, of East Hampton, New York, was convicted on four counts of wire fraud, three counts of unlawful monetary transaction, and one count of operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. U.S. District Judge Denise Casper scheduled sentencing for October 2022. Crater was arrested in February 2019. So the wheels of justice certainly spin slowly here. But anyway, fraud is fraud. Mr. Crater preyed on investors and offered them false opportunities in the expanding cryptocurrency marketplace to swindle them out of millions of dollars for his own personal use, said U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins. Mr. Crater and so on, it talks about stuff he said. Um, so from this article as well, this is going to be from Joseph Bonavolanta, the special agent in charge of the FBI Boston Division. Cryptocurrency scams are on the rise, and today's verdict proves that Randall Crater orchestrated one when he deceived and defrauded unsuspecting investors out of more than $6 million, which he spent on luxury items for himself. So, you know, one thing to think about when you're getting into the cryptocurrency phase or craze, if you will, or the same thing with NFTs and all this other stuff, that you know, there are going to be bad guys that are figuring out how to manipulate this kind of technology and rob you of your money. So if you're looking to buy NFTs, you're looking to buy cryptocurrency, make sure you do some due diligence and verify that where you're getting it from is a legitimate um, facility. So you're probably wondering, what is Mr. Crater looking at? Well, the charge of wire fraud provides a sentence of up to 20 years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of $250,000, or twice the gross gain and loss. So will he see any of that? Who knows? I guess we'll find out in October. But congratulations to the FBI in Boston, as well as the U.S. Postal and Service Inspector, uh, who also was part of this particular this particular. Um, arrest and prosecution good on them for finding a bad guy and making him pay 
With that, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen again to the Cyber Guy podcast. Uh, We will be back soon with yet another interesting, hopefully interesting episode for you to listen to. Know that knowledge is protection. If you can understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk online and you can then proceed wisely. Stay safe out there, make smart choices, and we will talk to you soon.